<laughs> Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast that, yeah, I can't even remember what our... Uh, uh, that you would do if you had nothing better to do? Something, or like, something that. like that. Yeah. Doesn't and, matter. And we're here at Think Tank co-working in beautiful Yarmouth, yes. Maine. And it's a nice evening. It's only, it's like 40 degrees Fahrenheit. My car is like you. 37, but still... Well, I was rounding up. Yeah, okay. Mine said 42, yeah. so I don't know. So it's about freezing for a change. Yes. For for a little while. It'll freeze all this ice. And you went to a birthday party today. Yes. Yeah, uh, you took your daughter to a birthday party. Okay, this birthday party, yes, my daughter, it was her classmate, his seventh birthday. They had it at a pool at a community I center. I hate that. I would hate that. The last time somebody had one was last year in the winter at a pool, and I had to swim with her. Ugh. There was one other woman that swam. The rest of the dad I bet swam. She was a hot mom. No, she was like me. Oh, she okay. was. She's younger, but she's not a hot mom. She's a chubby like me. So that was fine. I I felt better about that. Okay, so this time they had it at the high school. Has a really nice pool because the neighboring town. It was in Cape Elizabeth. Oh, very ooh. nice pool with a little hot tub cool too mm. but i didn't wear my suit and they have a bunch so of like naked yeah i did i'm an i'm a naturalist <laughs> i don't think other people understand no they don't is it natural no it's naturist naturist no anyways the thing that pissed me off is they had this big inflatable thing mm. like a bouncy house when did type I stop of, using in those? the middle of the of the pool it just seems like a lot well it was kind of like happen. that show that Japanese show where they knock people off wipe out oh yeah so that's an American show too yeah they copied it from the Japanese so Hannah does not she's got these goggles she can't swim we haven't given her swimming lessons yeah what do you expect her to just know how to swim no I threw her in the water (laughs) uh, no she wears a vest but she has to wear these goggles that cover her nose which I never had to do what do they make the kids wear those no, she just has to. She wears them. Why, um, do you, why does she have to? I don't understand. Because she won't go in the water without them. So it's, it's her who's it's her. making her. Yes, she's making herself wear them. Okay. Yes. So they wanted the kids to have like a little swimming test or they had to wear a vest because they don't want to... Kid that, drowning kids. Yeah. yeah, I get it. And they said if your kid can't swim, then you have to swim with them if you're not going to have them wear a vest. Oh. And I brought her vest. She has a little floaty vest, so she was wearing that. Isn't there like a kitty end of the pool? Yeah, there is, but... Still, it's easy to get. It's, I don't know. Uh, don't. So, anyways, I did not shave, and I was like, fuck it. I'm not going to wear my bathing suit this time. I'm not going in with her, even though I do kind of like it when I go in because I can pee. I'm just well, kidding. I was going to say, I was going to say, all I can think of is all the urine. I hate going in pools yeah. because of that. So, she went on the bouncy thing of course all the kids were going on it she wanted to get on it and it's really for bigger kids than them they couldn't reach there's like this middle part that has like this thing where you swing across it yeah and none of the kids could reach the thing so they kept falling in the water (laughs) so her goggles kept falling in the water and i didn't realize they don't fucking float so they would sink to the bottom which was about five foot deep that's a really bad pool accessory the lifeguards, which were a bunch of teenage girls that looked to me to be about 13, but I guess they were a little bit older because they must have been high school kids, for some reason would not go get the goggles for well, her. Maybe they were too busy trying to make sure people weren't drowning. Yeah, but there were like 10 of them there. Goggles. So Hannah's goggles fell off her head, yeah. and she was stranded on the floaty thing, which is in the middle of the fucking pool, and she was screaming and crying, and... I could not go in there because I didn't have my bathing suit. Would any other dads or moms help out and no, get the goggles? No, a fucking kid did. Mm-hmm. And so then it happened again. And I'm like, 
fucking A, you are not going on this floaty thing anymore. But then one of the lifeguard girls came up to me and said, um, she's not going to be able to go on the inflatable thing with her goggles because they keep falling off and we can't keep having kids go get her goggles for her. And I finally said, well, why don't you fucking go get them then? But I didn't. I said, yes. So I told Hannah and she started screaming and crying and told me she didn't want me anywhere near her and blah, blah, blah. Oh, God, I'm so glad I don't have And then she had already had a meltdown earlier than that because she wanted to do the swimming test. And I said, well, you can't swim, so there's no point in doing it. Well, maybe you should have let her done the test. She could have failed it, and then she would have realized she doesn't know how to swim. So anyways, she ended up being okay, and she liked the hot tub area, and she kept going in that. Well, that's good. And then they had the rest of the party in the cafeteria at the high school, and they had a um, pinata, which is my least favorite thing because, especially with these little kids, they don't hit it hard enough. I know. Or hit it at all. And then the way, (laughs) instead of hanging it, (laughs) instead of hanging it from somewhere, the dad was just like holding it up. And I'm like, what if somebody... That's an infinite way to And they had a wiffle bat, but like the height of the bat would have... He was a very tall man, and he would have been hit like... (laughs) My guess is, too, that the dad's... We're gonna we're getting frustrated with the thing not being hit hard enough. Yes, yes, he did. And guess what? They not only him, but all the dads. They ended up tossing it on the ground, and the kids just beat it Rodney King style. I'm not kidding. (laughs) Oh, so that was. um, Remember when we were kids? A bunch of kids would come to your house. I know. You'd have a cake. People would sing Happy Birthday. You'd open presents, and then you'd play. And some luckily, my games. birthday was in the summer. Yeah. Well, but the thing is, why do why does every birthday like didn't she she went to a trampoline one? That was her she birthday. She goes to these pool ones, but before it it was hers. No one ever to, has them at their house. It, yeah. I know. It's a thing. And then you have to get presents for all the other kids? No, we didn't fucking get Gift presents. Gift bags? Maybe that's why people don't have them I didn't at their give houses. them shit. No, because I, I remember cake. another thing with Nikki's kids where you had to have gift bags. I know, they the have gift kids, but I don't... No, nah, do they didn't give them. They didn't give them any gift bags at this Well, one. no, because they had it not at their house. Oh, that's true. Well, anyways, her birthday's in two weeks, and we haven't done figured out anything. Why don't I, you just have people over to your house because like then us, I have to and clean. we can have some cake? You don't have to clean if it's your family. It's not. The family thing's different than all her classmates. But you don't have to invite all her classmates. She we had, didn't have that every single we year. We didn't. She's going to have a party. She wants to have a party with all her classmates, well, which she has every year. Well, maybe her can clean the house then. In or any case, my point is... I keep saying do you have a plan for the birthday because it's in two weeks and we have to invite people and he's like i don't know i don't know and hannah said today we might as well just have it at our house and i said well what what will we have for entertainment you don't have to it's kids they play games even when we were kids they played pin the tail on the donkey and shit like that have a retro birthday. Anyways, you're not getting the fucking point. Yeah, I am, but yeah, I, but you're you just know, being, I don't really care because it it's doesn't nothing matter. I'm ever gonna but have I to did deal like with. the part where the kids were beating the. You know, they could. Do, you could have a retro pinata. birthday. They can do, you know, musical chairs. Although that's probably that's considered not one. good for kids because it's. I never liked it. I was yeah. always the first one out. Yeah. Anyways, okay. So, do you have an update? Yes, I have two. Ooh, you're so busy. Well, first I have what's not an actual update, but it's kind of an addition to my last. I did the Gardner heist last time. And you found the paintings? Yes, I did. Oh, good. And they're in good condition, and we're (laughs) going to get $10 million. (laughs) Yay! And I'm telling you now, so we can do it on the air, and it can be, you know, it can be one of those I'm things so like they have on the news where the dad comes home from Iraq, oh, yeah. and they don't tell the kid he's coming home, and they do it in the classroom, I'm excited now. so they can exploit the kids' tears. That's what I'm doing right okay. now with this. 
Uh, Are you excited? Yes, I'm extremely. No, actually, I'm lying. I didn't find the paintings. But last episode, when talking about the gardener, I made light of all the players who had written quote-unquote books. Mm -hmm. And I also mentioned one legit and really good book, Stealing Rembrandts, that was about art theft in general by Anthony Amore, who's now head of security at the gardener, and Tom Mashberg, who's a reporter for the Boston Herald. Mm -hmm. The book I didn't mention is probably the most legit and best of all. I'm sure it's better than than all the ones that I think are probably self-published by all the people I mentioned. Not that there's anything wrong with self-published books, but Master Thieves, The Boston Gangsters Who Pulled the, Off the World's Greatest Art Heist by Steve Kirkjian, who was a reporter for the Boston Globe and mm. covered a lot of it. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner three times. Ooh. Not for the Gardner coverage, but in local investigative specialized reporting is part of a team in 1972 that uncovered corruption in Somerville, Mass. In 1980, as part of a five-reporter team for its coverage of the T, which is Boston's transit system. And he was also part of the Spotlight team that uncovered the Catholic Church abuse that the movie was made Who out of. Who played him? Mark Ruffalo? I don't know oh, that sorry. his character was in the movie, but he was part of the real oh, team, see. not separating <laughs> real life from the movie. He was part of the real team, And the Boston Globe in 2003 won a Pulitzer for that. And his book has 63 reviews on Amazon with a four-star average. And from one writer to another, I just want to say that's pretty sweet for him. And I haven't read it, but I plan to um, once there's some money in my bank account. And here's its description on Amazon. In a secret meeting in 1981, a low-level Boston thief gave career gangster Ralph Rossetti the tip of lifetime. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum was a big score waiting to happen. Hmm. Though its collections included priceless artworks by Rembrandt, Vermeer, Degas, and others, its security was cheap, mismanaged, and out of date. And now it seemed the whole Boston criminal underworld knew it. Nearly a decade passed before the museum was finally hit, but when it finally happened, the theft quickly became one of the most infamous art heists in history. In Master Thieves, Kirkjian sheds some new light on some of the Garner's most abiding mysteries. Why would someone steal these paintings only to leave them hidden for 25 years? And why, if one of the top crime bosses in the city knew about the score in 1981, did the theft happen in 1990? What happened in those intervening years? And what might all of this have to do with Boston's notorious gang wars of the 1980s? That sounds Um, very interesting. So, yeah, if you haven't listened to our episode 42, listen to it. But if you want a really in-depth, well-told story that will add to that, I'd say get Master Thieves. Ah. And I plan to. I think a lot of the things that that book uncovered are things we talked about in our last episode because he was he wrote a lot of the stories yes, that the I stories got. the stories that you got. The... But um, I'm looking forward to reading that to get that backstory. And now I have an actual update to episode 37, which we posted October 24th. And that was the death of Swedish journalist Kim Wall, who died aboard the homemade submarine of Danish Danish inventor Peter Madsen, whose name I think I mispronounced constantly. Um, I think think about 50% of the time he pronounced it. I think I kept saying Madsen instead of Madsen. Madsen. For some reason, it's hard to say Madsen. For some reason. (laughs) And I got most of this from Ars Technica, an online biz IT and tech magazine. And the reporter on that was Sean Gallagher. And it also comes from the New York Times and Reuters. Danish inventor Peter Madsen has been charged with murdering Swedish journalist Kim Wall on his homemade submarine. Prosecutors said January 16th. He was indicted in January. And previously the charges had been manslaughter they hadn't like officially their justice system is different than ours and there was no official charge but they hadn't 
elevated it to murder yet. So he was indicted in January, and he was charged with killing her with prior planning and preparation, which is basically murder, Mm -hmm. as well as with dismemberment, indecent handling of a corpse, and improper sexual relations. And she'd been stabbed 14 times, mostly in her genital area, some of them internal wounds. So... Ew. Yes. They weren't able to determine and still haven't been able to determine how she died. Ugh. Because her remains were found a couple weeks after she was yeah. killed, dismembered, if you remember. And the indictment says he tied up and abused her before murdering her. It says he plans the murder by bringing items, including a saw and screwdrivers, onto the sub, which were used to hit, cut, and stab Wall while she was alive. And those aren't normally things he'd bring on the sub. According to the indictment, Madsen has also been charged with endangering others' lives, mobility, and health around the time of the murder by sailing in the roots of a cruise ship and a cargo ship, along with deliberately sinking his submarine. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about that stuff. You can listen to our episode, which does go into detail. I don't want to have to rehash it. Yes. But he's Ugh. been in custody since August 11th, and he had a number of stories about how she died. The first was that she was hit on the head with a 150-pound hatch cover of the submarine, but when her head was found and no, there was no skull fracture, he changed it to the to that she was overcome by carbon monoxide from an engine malfunction. And then he did admit dismembering her and throwing her body over, but he said he still didn't kill her. He said there wasn't enough oxygen in the submarine and she suffocated and he was upstairs and didn't notice and found her dead when he came back. And yeah, then he right. dismembered her and gave her a burial at sea. But in any case, he denies killing her. He still denies it. What an asshole. They also found traces of her blood and other forensic evidence on his clothing, Mm. and they found the saw that has forensic evidence showing it was used on her, and I think that was right before we recorded, but it may have been in time for me to mention it in our episode, or I might have mentioned it in an update later, I can't remember. Prosecutors believe, even though they can't determine a cause of death, that he either cut her throat or strangled her. Describing the case, now here's where you get into translation issues. You need a good translator. In one account, and I, I don't want to say which, it, it was either the New York Times, CNN, or Newsweek. I'm not sure which, and I don't know where they gave it. Describing the case as, quote, very unusual and extremely gross. <laughs> but other news sources have translated it as very unusual and extremely disturbing. Mm-hmm. And as you know, sometimes in different languages, words have nuances, and the translator needs to pick the right word. Because it wasn't like, it gross, it was disturbing. Well, it was gross, too, though. Yeah, but I don't think that's what the cops would I say. Know. Ooh, it was so <laughs> gross. So it was so gross. Gross. Also in October, if you remember, videos showing the torture and decapitation of women were oh. on his work computer at RML Space Lab, and he said God. the videos were not his. And while the journalist was doing research for a news article on Madsen, related, I think, initially to his rocket, he wanted to uh, man a rocket to, I think, Mars... <laughs> Um, but then she got interested in the submarine, and so she visited him on it, and she was last seen in a video taken from a cruise ship standing up in the hatch, smiling and waving. His trial begins March 8th, and they expect a verdict by April 25th, which seems very organized to me, um, considering yeah. our justice system. His sentence could be anywhere from five years to life in prison. Prosecutors Five are, years? It, given the charges... Oh, okay. Sorry. His sentence could be anywhere from five years to life in prison, though prosecutors, if you <laughs> let me finish the sentence, are pushing for life in prison. 
Although I guess Denmark has a parole system where he could still serve as little as 15. There's also a petition before the court to have him committed to a secure psychiatric facility indefinitely if he's determined to be mentally ill and poses a danger to others. But I read somewhere else that that's a routine petition that they do with anyone charged with murder. They also plan to destroy the sub, the, the Nautilus, once the trial is over. Oh, his life's work. Yeah, and while boarded the sub, as I said, on August 10th, and it was found on August 11th, about 15 hours after it had departed Copenhagen, Madsen was rescued from the sinking vessel and brought ashore, and that's when police picked him up. There was no trace of Wall. He said he dropped her off on shore the previous night. Her headless torso washed up on August 21st on an island near Copenhagen. Her head and legs were found later. And as I said, he denied killing her. He initially said it was an accident. When his trial starts March 8th, we'll have an update after that. Wow. So that's that's the news there. That is disgusting. I know. And he kept changing his story every time they found evidence. He's such a moron. But I think he thought that she wouldn't be found. Maybe he thought animals would eat her. If she, if he well, he had weighted out. her body parts down, and I think he just thought. I think, like a lot of narcissistic murderers, he thought he had this really smart plan, and probably didn't watch or listen to enough true crime to know how stupid his Should've plan really Dateline. was. You know, there are some really smart people who commit murder, but what they don't understand is, no matter how smart they are, police are trained to ferret out murderers and to look at evidence. And police are suspicious. It's like when we were texting about that Dirty John thing. He's a narcissist, and if you don't know who he is, listen to the podcast, the podcast Dirty John, not ours. He didn't even try to hide anything. People just had to look. A lot of people don't try to hide anything. They don't, because they're, I think they... They think they're smarter than everybody else. They do. And they're, they're not always... My feeling, too, is that they don't watch true crime. And you should never underestimate other people. Yeah. No matter how fucking smart you are. That's right. I'm looking at you, lady. Yeah, yeah, right here, baby. Yeah. You have a story yes, for us. Yes, I do. And I got most of the information for this story from the Portland Press Herald. I actually dragged my butt to the library to look at microphone for Ooh. this one. And I'm glad I did because although I remembered a lot of things, there are a lot of details I forgot. I'm a big advocate of finding. And it's, yeah. Because everything isn't on the, the internet. Source. It isn't. It's, Even it's in that. Think- the crime I'm going to talk about was 1999. So it's that kind of weird era. Anything late 90s, early 2000s. Newspapers didn't have everything online, but it's. They too- were very resistant and to And it's hard things when things aren't in the archives. And yeah. So, but that's where I got most of it. A lot of the recent things that I read online that were updates or retellings were stupid, yeah. as usual, or sensationalized, and some very inaccurate. Yeah, I watched a, an episode of Crime Watch Daily <laughs> with Chris Hansen. Okay. He used to be Dateline to Catch a Predator, That's if funny. you remember that one. <laughs> they had stuff wrong. I mean, just yeah. wrong. And but you wonder how they get that wrong, how they get it wrong. That, yeah, like date, where she was found, stuff like that. Like, you wonder where they get their information in the first place. I have no clue. They just pull it out of their ass. But the thing I liked about it was I was able to see an interview with her mother, victim's mother, and with one of the suspects. It was interesting to see. And it was done in April 2016. So the it was crime yes, so it was fairly recent. Wow. I got some information from other sources. There was a source called uh, there was a site called Tapa Talk, which I think is still around. It's kind of a forum site. There were a lot of them in the late 90s. The post I read was from 2001 and 1999. They were still online. They're kind of a precursor to like Reddit where people would 
post about different things. Like I used to go on oh, one like for, that soap opera. Yes, one I used to, to go, go on, on soap opera yeah. ones. Oh there, yeah, that was really early. I found a post that. from someone. Her screen name was Katie's Back, and it had a lot of good information. And I don't know if she had copied and pasted it from an article or not, but it had a lot of. Or pulled it out of her ass. I don't know, but it had a lot of information about the um, family of the victim and quotes from them. So that's another source anyways. So let me start. Oh, yeah, I'm excited. On Wednesday, February 10th, 1999, Michael Lopes was driving down Pine Point Road in Scarborough, Maine. It was 4 a.m. and his mother was in the car with him. Pine Point Road is about three miles long, starts at Route 1 in Scarborough and ends at East Grand Avenue which runs along Pine Point Beach and eventually leads to Old Orchard Beach. Michael Lopes lived in Old Orchard Beach, which is a town and the beach. So he was probably driving toward the ocean. Nothing I read said what direction he was driving in. They all said he was driving home, though. Thought it was a weird time of the day, but the story's not about him, so. Yeah. I did read one place he was driving home from work, so maybe he worked third shift. Could be. He and his mom. This area of Scarborough is dominated by a 3,200-acre saltwater marsh. Pine Point Road starts out as a normal semi-rural road with houses on both sides, but in a half mile or so, the marsh takes over on both sides of the road. Then the road eventually goes back to houses then restaurants and businesses closer to the beach during the summer the marsh grass grows several feet high and is home to great snowy egrets I and know, other wildlife outdoorsy people like to canoe and kayak through the maze of natural canals and i'm not one of those people no. but i can appreciate it pretty, while i'm driving yeah. by but on this early morning the marsh was dark and uninviting There wasn't a lot of snow on the ground or the road in the middle of winter the marsh grass is brown and dried up when it's not covered in snow The landscape is flat and barren. The only building on this stretch of the road is the small cinder block Scarborough Marsh Nature Center on the left, about a mile down from Route 1. During the summer, you can rent canoes there or book a tour of the marsh. As Michael Lopes neared this, this stretch of road, he noticed a person in the middle of the road. He later told police he found her face down, lined up with the center line, hands by her sides, legs out straight. Her hair was combed, clothes all were on and fastened. It was almost as if she was placed there, he said. Hmm. And that's what I remembered about that. And every time I drove by that, because I drove by it many times because my boyfriend used to live down there, I'd always think of that, the way she was was lined up at the middle of the road. Every time I've driven down that road, I think about that. Lopes stopped the car and called 911 on his cell phone. Remember, this was 1999, and believe it or not, not everyone had a cell phone. Yeah, he I was didn't. one of the few. Yeah. And the newspaper called it on his cellular telephone. Then I had yes. to look back and make sure it was 911 he called, because not every place had it, and it did say right. he called 911. Yeah. He was trained in CPR, so he started trying to revive the young woman. According to Lopes, her body was still warm, but she had no pulse, and her skin was blue. Mm. And it seems like it still would have been dark at 4 a.m. in February, but... There well, were street lights. Headlight. Lopes did not notice any injuries to the young woman, but she did have a small amount of blood around her nose and mouth. She was wearing two lightweight shirts, black leggings, and platform shoes. She had no coat or outerwear on. She sure wasn't dressed for the weather, said Lopes. Mm. The low temperature on that date was in the mid-20s Fahrenheit. So about negative six Celsius for our oh, many nice, readers. Nice. I usually don't, but yeah. we're about the only ones that use Fahrenheit, aren't we? I think so. In the United States. The girl was dead. Police were not sure who she was at first. They checked local schools later that morning to see who was absent, looked at missing persons reports, and talked to nearby residents. Local television stations reported the story on the new news with a description of the young woman. Several people called the Scarborough Police Department saying they thought it might be Ashley Willette, a sophomore at Thornton Academy in neighboring Saco. Her parents were Robert and Lise Willette, who owned a real estate agency almost across the street from the school. 
which is located on Main Street in Saco, Route 1. And it's right around the corner from where you and I used to yes. live on Beach Street. Yes. Back in the early 80s. That's right. Ashley's parents were well-known in the town. She had a younger sister, Lindsay, who was 12 at the time. Thornton Academy is a day school and boarding school for grades 6 through 12. Although it is a private school, it also serves as the public high school and middle school for students in Saco. It has a good reputation and some programs that are not traditional for children that don't do well in a structured setting. Ashley was one of the students who took part in the alternative education program, which features independent study and a a one-on-one instructional model. She was apparently doing well and was a hard worker. Wednesday afternoon, a friend of Lisa's called her and told her about the news story. Lisa and Robert had assumed Ashley had gone to school. They soon found out otherwise. When they found out she wasn't in school, they headed to the police department in Scarborough. The police had a photo of the girl they found. Lisa couldn't look at the photo, and Mm. she made her husband look yeah he confirmed it was their daughter robert willette said she was a good person who was a very warm and sincere person we're at a loss to everything that happened he also said that she was spending the night at a friend's house less than a mile away she said she was in for the night and said good night to her mother we don't know what happened after 10:30. the night before her body was found on pine point road ashley asked her mother lease if she could spend the night at her friend's house Aaliyah page lease checked with robert and they decided it would be fine Sometime after 10 p.m., Ashley called home to say goodnight to her mother. Lisa asked what they were up to, and Ashley said painting her nails, typical sleepover stuff. They said goodnight and I love you to each other, and that was the last time they spoke. Sometime after the phone call, some boys from school stopped by the house to see the girls. No doubt the girls had called them. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Said, we're yeah. I had a hard time finding out more about this part of the night. Um, were the parents there? Who else was there? I don't know. Like, right, if there whatever. were parents home in the house. Yeah. Who were the boys that stopped by? I don't know. Um, the only one I know is, according to Lise Willette, one of the boys was named Jay Carney, whose name will come up a little later. Mm. The boys told the girls that were going over to the home of Danny and Stephen Sanborn a few miles away on Mast Hill Road. The home is a double-wide trailer, but it has a basement built under it. The basement is where the boys' bedrooms were. The girls went with their visitors to the Sanborn home to hang out. Danny was a year older than Ashley, and his brother Stephen was two or three years older than Ashley. I know he was two years older than Danny, but I'm not sure Mm -hmm. if he was still in school or not. According to some sources, Ashley had a prior relationship with Stephen. Lise didn't think she had had a relationship with him, but but everybody agreed that she had a crush on Stephen and wanted to see him. I know. I think she might have had a thing with them. Maybe yeah. not. After hanging out at the Sanborns home about midnight, the kids decided to leave, but Ashley opted to stay. She told the boy's mother, Muriel, that she had been kicked out of her home and had nowhere to go. This was apparently not true, but probably a ruse to garner sympathy to get Muriel to agree, which she did. She made up the couch for Ashley to sleep on. This couch was right outside the boy's bedroom's doors. Uh. So I don't think it's a good idea. You know, I slept at a boy's house once when my ride home was too drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, similar scenario. But his mom, this kid's mom, put me in a bedroom with his sister. Interesting. They had twin beds. Ah. She's a smart lady. Yes. Do you want to name any names? Yeah, it'll sound like a fake name because his it. name is Mike Mike Hunt. Mike, <laughs> Mike Hunt. That was his name. Remember, I, whenever he got called to the office, they'd always say Michael Hunt. Yes. So, also staying at the home was a male friend of the boys, Christopher Cody. Also, a disclaimer here. 
I actually worked with Muriel Sanborn a couple of years after this happened. We worked together for several years. I didn't know who she was, that she was their mother. I knew about the case, as I'm sure a lot of people did at that time, because it was about 2001. Yeah. Well, so everyone in Southern Maine was familiar with it. Even now, if you showed someone Ashley's picture, they'd identify her as the girl who was found on Pine Point Road. Did, did you know Muriel well? No. I'll get to that. Okay. Anyway, another coworker who was into true crime like I was, she told me, it was like 2004, she said, do you know who she is? She's the mother of those two guys. Oh, wow. And um, where, did, where did you guys it work? It was at Home Depot. Oh. So I had a few years of working with her without any kind of preconceived notion of who she was, mm-hmm. and she was a nice person. Yeah. She seems like a very nice person, reliable worker. And I remember once I was in the training room at work when the head cashiers were having their meeting, and I was eavesdropping, of course, uh-huh. and they all agreed that they wished all the cashiers were like her oh, well. because she was so reliable and so trustworthy. And Did she seem haunted at all? No, no. She's just a regular nice, she's a nice person. Mm-hmm. And I don't like judging people based on how their kids turn yeah, out. Yeah, no shit. It's not yeah. really fair. Not at it's all. easy for people to do when they don't have to deal with that kind of shit but yeah, um, in any case. So how did Ashley get from the Sanborns house on Mast Hill Road in Saco to Pine Point Road in Scarborough, about five miles away. Not ten. Not as ten is the true crime show. And there. how did she die? According to her autopsy, which was completed very quickly, it was completed by Wednesday afternoon, mm. she died of strangulation. As to how she got where she was, that hasn't been proven. As we've discussed in other episodes about Maine murders, state police will take over investigations of all murders in Maine, with the exception of the cities of Portland and Bangor. Maine state police didn't waste any time searching the Sanborn home. They kicked the family out on Thursday and didn't let them back into the house until Friday evening. Police also impounded the car that Danny, the younger one, most often drove, an Eagle Summit. The police didn't reveal what they found at the time, but we have since learned that police took items such as a used condom, a pillow, and other items with blood on them from the home, Mm. carpet and fabric items. They also found dried grass in the car that matched grass found on Ashley's clothes, and they took tissue, hair, fingernail samples, and clothing from Danny Sanborn. Mm. Newspaper reports days after the murder quote the state police spokesman, Steve McCoslin, (laughs) as saying, We are determined and committed. Some investigations take longer than others. Some take longer than we'd wish, but we're in this for the long haul. Sergeant Matthew Stewart, the state police detective in charge of the investigation at the time, said, As each day goes by, we are making progress. We're optimistic this situation will be resolved. Mm. 100 days after Ashley's death, and I'll say that it was on the front page two days, then it was on the local section one day, Mm -hmm. and then there was nothing for I don't know how long. I didn't. I didn't have much yeah, time. Because if there's nothing to I know, write about, I know. I know. I know. That, but that's what I'm saying. That's right. what happened. They had a flurry of, of information, of information and, and nothing. nothing. So a hundred days after Ashley's death, state police were frustrated. Sergeant Stewart said, "We're not yet at a point where we can reach standards of probable cause for an arrest on any one particular person at this particular time. It takes a lot of time and patience." We believe there are people who have direct knowledge, solid knowledge, about what happened to Ashley. We need people to come forward. Right. So it's another case where they know who did it. They just don't have the evidence. The Willettes, for their part, were being patient. Although they were haunted by what may have happened to Ashley at the Sanborn home, because they did believe that that was where Ashley died, Bob Willett, her dad, said, 
there were several people in the house, and it'll raise reasonable doubt. I know what detectives are facing. It has to be conclusive. Lee said, you only have one chance, and if you don't do it right, you don't get a second chance. Lisa's brother was killed in November 1995 when his car ran into an I-beam that was being illegally transported at night. Wow. The driver of the truck and the company the driver worked for were charged with manslaughter. What, had it fallen off the truck? And he... No, it probably wasn't. It was in the middle of the night. It wasn't marked correctly, I think, oh. and his car like just he probably was behind him lee said we were waiting three years before we went to court for my brother the prosecutors would tell us to be patient and we were the system takes time i would rather wait for justice than not get it after a ten thousand dollar reward was offered police got about a dozen calls and stewart who was the detective said that they had a steady stream of information coming in a week does not go by that we don't receive new information but by then, a hundred days later, the investigative team had shrunk from 30 people to two. Mm-hmm. And they were working on other cases as well. Both parents were still in pain months after their daughter's death. Lee said, sometimes I feel like I'm living in a movie. I'm here and the world is moving out there. I can still feel the labor pains and remember seeing those little fingers for the first time. My kids are my world. I still have two daughters, as far as I'm concerned. And Bob Willett said, it just wipes you out. In the same interview, he talked about how something like hearing a song his daughter liked could trigger a memory. And, quote, you think about what could have been and what we're missing. He admitted he was, quote, angry as hell. In May 2001, a little over two years after his daughter's death, Robert Roulette died of a heart attack at the age of 49. Uh His brother Tom and his associate Arthur Tardiff say that he'd had a physical two weeks before his death and seemed healthy. Stress probably was a factor in his death, though. Tardiff said, I'm sure there was a lot of stress, but Bob didn't show it. The Wellup family pursued a wrongful death suit against Earl Muriel Sanborn in 2001. They filed it in February. The Sanborns filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy, which delayed their depositions. The court eventually did depose them because I saw part of Muriel's recorded deposition on Mm -hmm. the Crime Watch Daily Show. She was crying because of Ashley's death. The lawyer asked her why she's upset, and she says, because a little girl died. She was only 15 years old, and then she's crying. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure she, you know. Yeah. I watched that on YouTube too and um of course i don't know why i read comments but someone's like the mother of those guys is evil and i'm like how can you say that about this woman? i never read comments i know they're bullshit. They're fucking stupid people i couldn't find anything online about what eventually happened to the suit but i can't imagine anything came of it they have no money i mean no. and also if the suit had gone to court and something had come of it there would have been articles yes, about it. Yes, there would have been. The Sanborns claimed that since Ashley was kicked out, according, they thought she was, her parents didn't have a right to sue anyone because they didn't have control over her. Of course, she wasn't really kicked out, and I'm not sure why the suit was brought, but probably, as we discussed in the Ayla Reynolds case, the civil suit will bring out some more information, hopefully. Right. The burden of proof is not as stringent. Of course, it can screw up a criminal investigation, yes. too. As I said... I knew Muriel, though not well. I felt a little protective of her when I was reading stuff about her online, and I felt like a lot of assumptions were made about her and she wasn't treated fairly, although that's the internet. Mm-hmm. Crime Watch Daily did not treat her fairly either. And back when I first found out who she was, I had a lot of sympathy because, like I said, it's I mean, just because her kid may have done it, I was sure, as were most people, that one of her sons was the killer. And most people that talked about it thought it was the younger one, Danny. Well, Um, most crimes, I mean, he's the one who had the opportunity. She was there. 
the likelihood in that short span of a few hours of somebody else doing it when she was sleeping. The only thing I could think of is, because I don't think she had anything to do with the cover-up or any of it. Oh, Muriel. Yes. yes. But if she did, if she thought the death was accidental some way and she was trying to protect her son, that I could see that someone right. doing that, maybe. I mean, I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying that you can see that someone trying to do that for their own kids in general, not just her. Right. Almost 19 years later, no arrests have been made in the case. No movement has really occurred since that first week of investigation. It doesn't mean the police don't know who did it. Lee Willett is convinced it was Danny. Danny has had arrests on drug charges and assault of a police officer and spent three years in prison. He was also arrested for counterfeiting in 2002. He printed uh, money on a... And he bought expensive paper and printed it on a computer. And mm, yep. Nice try. Um, from my internet snooping, it appears that he and his brother Stephen, along with some other family members, still live in the house on Mast Hill Road. Yeah, we saw the ambush interview with him, which I'll talk about later mm-hmm. on Crime Watch Daily, and it was the same house. And this was, like I said, uh, just about two years ago. Yeah. Crime Watch Daily made a big deal about another unsolved case being tied to Ashley's death. This is the disappearance of Anthony Angel Torres. Tony, as his family calls him, was from the Bitterford Saco area and had moved down to Massachusetts to go to college. He was back home visiting his parents for Mother's Day 1999. This is according to an interview on Crime Watch Daily with his father, Narciso. But the date of his disappearance is May 21st, which is not Mother's Day, so I don't know. As usual, they got stuff wrong, but the father was wrong, too, because he said he was here visiting his mother for Mother's Day. I'll talk about it later, but I think the parents are putting a very positive spin on Maybe their Maybe he missed Mother's Day and oh, came but to make up for They got it. a lot of shit wrong on that crime watch daily. In 1999, Torres was 21 years old. According to police, he had come up for the weekend to sell drugs with his friend Jason, or Jay, Carney. Mm. According to Torres' parents, Tony went to his ex-girlfriend's apartment on South Street in Biddeford, just across the Saco River from Saco. Biddeford is it. About 2 a.m., the two men left the party to go to the store down the street, which was then called Jim and Renee's Market, and it's like within walking distance. Right. A while later, Jay returned alone. He said that Tony was picked up by someone in a red pickup truck. If you remember, Jay Carney was the boy at the sleepover, and he reportedly gave some of the girls, including Ashley, a ride to the Sanborns the night of Ashley's death. Mm-hmm. According to state police, Carney said he and Angel Torres were going to meet with some clients who were unhappy with the quality of the drugs they had purchased mm-hmm. from the two. I've never been a drug dealer, best, okay, so but I would never want to meet with clients who are unhappy with the quality of the drugs. I can't lead to anything good. I know. So why they went to meet with them, yeah, they're not too. When Jay returned to the party, according to other guests, he was upset and disheveled and alone. Mm. Police never believed he was telling the whole truth about the night his friend and business partner just disappeared so i just want to make sure i understand it a few months before that he gave the girls a ride to the sanborn yes he was friends with the sanborn and now he's he's friends with with angel's disappearance too and that's the one connection that the two have yes unfortunately jay carney died of a drug overdose in june 2015 and when he died whatever he knew died with him Mm mm-hmm Angel's father, Narciso, is convinced the two crimes, Ashley's death and Angel's disappearance, are connected. The week after Ashley's death was February vacation. The kids were all partying, as they did do, probably still. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the talk was all about Ashley and who could have killed her. Narciso said he was watching the TV news with his son, and the topic came up on the news. Narciso said, 
We were in the living room watching the news, and the story of Ashley Willette came up, and he immediately said, I know who killed her, and I know the people who killed her, and I cautioned him. You're either going to go to the police with this information, or you're going to keep your mouth shut, but be careful who you share this with. At the time, I didn't know how much to believe that he actually knew, and the little bit of a little part of me feared for him, because you know, witnesses can be silenced. I wish I could go back now and pick him up by his shirt and say, we're going to the police right now, but I didn't do that. Mm-mm. So Narcissa believes Angel is gone because he knew something. That, that I feel like this is a very tenuous theory. Well, I mean, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that, let's say, Jay killed Ashley, or Jay's buddies with the Sanborns, and Jay knows Danny killed Ashley, and Angel's like, shit, you killed somebody, or your pal killed somebody, and we should do something about it, and then so Jay Maybe. kills him. Yes, that could be true. My, I... I have my own theories. But. Mm-hmm. Crime Watch Daily did an ambush interview with Stephen Sanborn. Yeah, that's I made funny. you watch it. Yeah, we'll put that on our website. He admitted that he knew both Jay and Angel, and they were both drug dealers, and which was known um, not to speak ill of the dead or um, the missing. And his parents did not. Well, let's just, I just heard the same conversation in another podcast, but I'd say this anyway. Saying what the dead did isn't speaking ill of Okay. Them. Well, know, I don't, I don't know if it's... I just... His parents didn't dispute the fact that he dealt and used right. drugs. Right. You're saying that people are saying it. You're, you know, yeah. so... Okay. Stephen told the reporter that he was asleep the night Ashley died and wouldn't speak about what his brother Danny may or may not have done. He said that he and Danny didn't speak about the murder. When the reporter asked if Danny and Ashley had sex, Stephen said the cops must know that since they have the DNA. He said his life has been turned upside down by all the suspicion over the years, and he wishes he knew who did it because, quote, they would be burning, mm-hmm. even if it was his brother. Mm-hmm. Although I think he's, that motherfucker would be burning. Yeah, it was a lot of it was bleak. Yeah. <laughs> the Biddeford Saco area is small, and everyone knows each other, especially the young people who are partying together. So the Sanborns knew Angel and Jay, but they also did drugs, bought drugs, and sold drugs, and they hung around with unsavory people. Right. I was going to say, for people who live in other places... It may seem quite a coincidence, but if you're in Maine, even say you're from Augusta, and you know some of the same people people from Portland know, there's a million people in the state, which is a lot of people in some cases, but if you're all in the same age group, you run into Especially people. Especially if you're partying, you know, if right, you're you know the people, same. People tend to move between cities and stuff to the point where people know other people and it's not beyond the realm of possibility people yeah. in completely separate murders would know each other. That's true. And yeah. as for Angel saying he knew who did it, I think everyone knew yeah. who yeah. did it yeah. unless he was there, which he wasn't and saw what happened, which he didn't. He really didn't have anything to tell the police. He wasn't there. He was in Massachusetts when it happened. Yeah. Yeah. He came back the week after and was talking to people. Right. But he did, I mean, he, yeah, your your theory that someone might have said something could be true. But, but just as easily, he could, you know how kids are. Also, oh, yeah. oh, so-and-so did it. Right. I know for a fact. Yeah, I was going to say that. They're teenage boys and who knows, or young men and who knows and the women. kind of I mean, stuff, people gossiping. The yeah. kind of braggadocio and stuff that. And of course he'd say, I know who did people it. People talking. I know who did it. I mean, uh, that doesn't mean he actually knows yeah. who did it. The, the one thing and this doesn't speak to him knowing or not knowing, if somebody who's staying at your house was found murdered in the road and you had nothing to do with it, you and your brother who were in the house, if neither of you had anything to do with it, you'd be talking about it all the fucking time. I know. The fact that they didn't talk about it 
Unless he was just telling who knows the TV guy. guy. I'm not saying that that's evidence. I'm just saying if you'd be talking, wow, Ashley was here sleeping on the couch, and next thing we know, she was murdered. Holy shit, you'd be talking about it. I know. Well, the Sanborns all claim that Ashley left their home sometime during the night after they all went to sleep. Lise Willette scoffs at this idea. But I have have two theories. But Lise Willette would probably scoff if... Nothing had happened to Ashley, that Ashley would have lied to her about where she was, I know, that I Ashley know, would know. have gone to and the And that's what I want to say. I want to say, I have these two theories that I will present to you, and then you can talk about what you think. I feel that she had sex with Danny Willette. I don't think it was consensual, but maybe she thought at first he was Stephen and agreed. You know, we don't know. <laughs> well, we don't know. We don't know what the circumstances right. were and realized it wasn't, or he forced himself on her, or maybe she Why willingly had sex. Why would it be more palatable for her to have sex with she had that, she had a crush oh, on that's Stephen. Right, that's right, that's right. Or maybe he forced himself on her. Uh, maybe she did agree. And in any case, I don't think there was any proof, any way to prove that she was raped or that her having sex had anything to do with her death. I think that's why, even though they took the condom and took DNA and all that stuff, they can't prove that it had anything to do with her death. That's all I'm saying. But if she was upset for whatever reason, she could have left the house I know her mother says it's not possible, but I did that at least once. Yeah. once Everybody's done I can it. tell you one story that's interesting for some people, maybe well, not well, you. Yeah. Once when I was in Hampton Beach with my friends, I was 18. I was right before I turned 18. I and one of my friends ended up at the apartment of two guys. She hooked up with one of them, but I wasn't interested in his friend. The friend tried to kiss me, and I said, no, thanks. He decided he was going to go to bed. So I was just like sitting there. I was drunk, and I decided I was going to walk back to our cottage which was probably about five or six miles away. This was at one in the morning, and I knew I just had to walk Route 1A along the coast, so that's what I did. I remember I wasn't sure where I was going. This was 1983, mm-hmm. so no cell phones, no map quest or anything. So I stopped at a phone booth and looked in the phone book where I knew there would be a map. I can't remember if I had any money for the pay phone or if our cottage even had a phone. Even if it did, we didn't have a car um, none of my friends could have picked me up anyway because I had other ma- friends staying at the cottage. There were six of us girls. Someone's dad drove us to Hampton mm-hmm. Beach, and someone else's dad picked us up a week later. Mm. I walked for a while, and if I saw a car coming, I hid in the bushes by the side of the I road. I would have done that too. I didn't want anyone to see me. At some point, a cop came by, and I must have seen that it was a cop because I remember thinking, oh, I'll let that cop see me, and he'll pick me up and give me a ride home, which is exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. He picked me up. He said, what are you doing walking on the road? And I said, I was at a guy's house and I didn't want to be with him and so I left. It was the Rye, New Hampshire. He called on the radio and he's like, oh, she's with some guy and I'm going to just drive her back because he must have had to tell them why he was coming. Yes, yeah, they have to tell people where they are. Well, it's I happened have similar, to me a few times. And I won't, I won't make I'm, this a real long story, but when, once when I was in college, I had gotten, I started playing rugby. We had a, it was the first ever women's rugby team at my college. And I had a new group of friends who weren't my old standby loyal friends. And some of them were older girls and they partied a lot harder than I did. I can't believe that. I know. And we went to a party off campus. This was in Worcester, Massachusetts. The party was being given by somebody at another college. Worcester has like 10 colleges. I didn't know where we were. I didn't know the neighborhood. I didn't know any of the people except for the girls I went with who were more acquaintances than anything else. And something happened that I won't go into, and I decided I wanted to leave. Something happened with a guy that I wasn't comfortable with. And I just started walking. And this is Worcester, Massachusetts. It was like September, October. I can't. And it would have been 1980, I think. Mm. And 
started walking and thinking, well, I kind of know Worcester. I can find my way back to college. I don't think I had gone too far when a car with some of the girls I had gone with came by and they pulled over. Hey, what are you doing? Get in. Yeah, well, they didn't even know I was gone, but they saw me walking. Uh And so it was fortuitous because who who knows? But if somebody had said, if something had happened to me, and somebody had said to our parents, well, you know, maybe she just took off. They would have said she wouldn't have done I that. I know. They would have said that. And, like, even my my friends at college would have said she wouldn't have done that. Yeah. She wouldn't have. So oh. you do things when you're that age that people have no idea no, that you're doing. You and there were other times as a teenager that I left someone's house in the middle of the night and decided to walk yeah. home. That's happened Sometimes, to me a few times. Yeah. There's been time. There were times you know, when you just want to be out of there you and you, you're leave. not saying, oh, it's so dangerous out there yeah. in the night. You're just like, I don't want to be here anymore and I'm going. And nothing ever happened to me. But what if someone I knew stopped and asked me if I wanted to ride home? Even if somebody I barely knew from right. school. I would have, yeah. Um, what if what if they were a scumbag and I didn't know it? I mean, no one would have known. Yeah. I mean, that night in Worcester, if a car with a guy who I'd seen at the party or something, who I kind of knew or kind of knew from school, from my college, yeah. who I didn't know well, I would have gotten in yeah. for a ride. Without and thinking twice so enough. that's why I, it makes me, it just made me pause and think, you know, I can see it might be possible that if she did leave the house, mm-hmm. she was upset or possibly drunk. I don't know if they were drinking or smoking or to just decide to walk home and someone could have picked her right. up. So, I mean, I, her mom said it's 10 miles away. Whatever. So can I... Well, my other theory, I only talked about oh, one the, Oh, I thought it was... My good. other theory is the most popular one, which is Danny strangled her, and he perhaps with help dumped her, and that is also entirely possible. I feel at this point, this murder will never be solved or go to court. But then there is a trial going on right now in Maine for the murder of Joyce McLean, which happened in 1980. And you never know. In this case, the police pretty much knew who did it all these years, too, but they weren't able to prove it until now. Ashley was described as compassionate and mature for her age. She helped her friend Kimberly Vaughn through her pregnancy and was even a birth coach when the baby was born three weeks before Ashley's death. Mm. One of her teachers remembered how some classmates of Ashley's came to a school dance straight from an athletic event. They were concerned about how they looked, so Ashley shared her makeup and jewelry Oh, wasn't that sweet? She was also called rebellious and spirited, Mm. but it seems that her new school curriculum was helping her focus more on her studies. Mm. And she sounds like she was probably a typical girl of 15, wanting to have fun, be with friends, hopeful about a boy she liked, Mm. and she'd be 33 or 34 now had she lived. Yeah. Her mother, Lise, has been through a lot in those few years. The death of her brother, then her daughter a few years later, and then her husband a couple years after that. So I hope for her sake something yes. happens with this case. Yeah. So what was your theory? Well, I was going to so say a couple things about both your theories. First, the whole DNA thing. In 1999, DNA was still a lot less yes. focused than it is now. And if he wore a condom... It, you wouldn't get the same kind of DNA then that you Although I think that's how, like, this Joyce McLean one was because of DNA. Yeah. And but, but, so. Right. So that's that's what I think about the whole DNA thing, that the reason there may not, and who knows what they. But like I said before, too, just because they had sex. Right. If he had a condom on, that's what I'm saying. There wasn't the kind of touch DNA yes. and stuff that there is now. That you would need, you know, what was in the condom inside to be in her not in the condom but what i'm saying is even if it was his and even if they did have sex it doesn't mean he killed her right and i was going to say it whether you know there's no way to know if any sex was consensual or not but i could just see i could see she had a crush on steven but danny wanted to do something 
and thinking, not, oh, I'll just have sex with anybody, but the way a teenage mind works, well, maybe if I have sex with Danny, it'll somehow help me get closer to his yes. brother or some stupid yeah, that, I, thing I, like that. I, yeah. The one thing that makes me think it wasn't a random person, like she left the house and it was a random person, is the condition of if you kill, and I know this is a huge generalization, but if if you're a guy just looking for somebody to rape and then kill, you're not going to bother to neatly put no. the clothes back on. No. You're not going to bother. Whoever did it wanted her to be found. Yes. They wanted to be sure she was found somewhere else. Yes. She didn't walk. And they didn't point. just toss her out the window. Right. They, they laid, laid her on so, the ground where there were no, no so, houses. So, no so my feeling on that is it was someone who knew her, who put her clothes, if she was raped or something, put her clothes back on, who neatly put her down there. Her hair was neat and everything like that. Or it was some serial killer with some really weird... That never, we never saw again around but here. But we never saw him do anybody else again. And also, they mentioned in one of the articles or something that a jacket and stuff was taken out of his Danny's, the family vehicle that he drove. Because where was her coat? You know, she she right. must have put one on before she went over right. to their where house. Was her stuff? Yeah. yeah, I mean, she was fully dressed, but not with outerwear. She didn't have a coat or anything on, yeah. which is weird. It'd be interesting to and know. And it was who February. Else, it would be interesting to know who else was in the house that, that night, and if they had a. Car no, they said that Christopher too. guy, but that was the only time I ever heard of that. Yeah, Christopher Cody. I only saw the name of her friend in that post that was on that. Right. But it did seem like it was from an article. But so. it's frustrating when this happens. I think the police pretty much know. Everything I've read recently... But they can't prove it. That's what, that, what frustrates... And I understand how the justice, justice system works, and there's a reason it works the way it does. And you don't want it to work differently, and you don't want them to well, try to get a false confession or trump something up against somebody or bring him to trial and have him acquitted. Well, and that's exactly what her mother was saying. Not enough but evidence. That was... But it's frustrating that so many young women are killed and... Nobody is ever brought to justice for doing it. And I think there are the huge majority of unsolved murders in Maine. And I'm not talking about missing people. I'm talking about unsolved murders are young women. Yes, there are. There's a lot of young women that... Well, that Joyce McClain was still on the cold case. Yeah. Well, the whole reason that cold case Ashley Willett's mother was one of the people instrumental in getting that cold case... And and the Angel Torres parents do. Right. Started because they felt like nothing was going on with their kids' cases and the state needed to focus. And I do feel like there's a sense that as years go by that there are people who could make policy and make things happen who feel it's not important. Yeah. It was a long time ago. Yeah. And not only is it important for the family, yeah, let's just have that as a given, but it's important that our justice system works the way it's supposed to. It's important that any death by the hands of someone else is solved and somebody is brought to justice because to not do that makes a mockery of the justice system. To say, well, it was 20 years ago, can't we move on to something else? And you hear that in a lot of different cases about things where people don't want to talk about it. And not only murders, but sexual assaults and other things. And it's like, it has to still matter. It has to matter, or our justice system doesn't matter, people's lives don't matter, or the girl who gets murdered tomorrow and left in the road isn't going to matter. And, the, and luckily, there isn't a statute of limitations on, on murder, because 
otherwise, who knows? I mean, like, I can't imagine not knowing or kind of knowing or thinking you know for years and years who who killed somebody. And so, seeing that person, especially in a small town. Right. It's just so hard to believe that they can't find enough evidence or I think something. they just, I think the problem is there's too much reasonable doubt. Yeah. And nobody will say who was there will actually say. And it could be true. Maybe Stephen was asleep the whole time, like he says he was. Right. And maybe his brother went out there, he tried to put the moves on Ashley. She said, get away from me, and he strangled her. She was a small girl. He yeah. could have picked her up himself probably and gotten rid of her. Yeah. But it makes you wonder, did he have his friend help him? Well, also, a double-wide tra- double trailer is not a big house. But you they know, were in the basement. Even so, yeah. you can hear stuff going on. Yeah, I know. And if somebody's moving around at 3 in the morning and moving a body out of the house, yeah, that's true. just like the Ayla Reynolds thing. Yeah, I know. It's hard for the... Uh, it's hard for... Somebody has to be able to say something. Right. I can't believe that only he knows. And the thing is, I think the, his brother probably the does. The way her body was placed in on the center line of the road like that is so... If it had just been dumped in yeah, a ditch, it would, I know. half of her clothes off. I know. Not that I'm advocating, but it's, that it's would... It's eerie. And that's the thing I always remember about... And it uh, remembered about so much case. about what could have happened. Yeah. If you're a stranger who picks somebody up on the side of the road, you don't take the time to do that. You do what you're going to do, and you leave their body dumped, or you try to hide it in the woods. Or they would have thrown it... They could have thrown it in the watery part of the... Um, the marsh. Marsh. Nobody they ever would have done found anything. It. Yeah. You know? Yeah, they wanted, whoever didn't want it, her body to be found. I mean, they it's didn't just want her weird. to just be missing. Because, and you feel like they want her body to be found because it's somebody they know and care about. So they don't want her body rotting in the marsh. And it could be or, that whatever happened, they, they didn't mean to kill her. Mm-hmm. But even if the someone no- doesn't mean to kill someone. Uh, well, they did it, I know. Th- you know. But it's like similar to that Nicole Cable. It's a very similar scenario, except for that one was planned. Yeah. Well, I guess it isn't similar, but no. the way they died was similar. Yeah. Except for they caught that guy right away. Yeah, and and yeah. that was episode whatever a few well, episodes part of the ago. Problem, part of the problem is when people keep their mouths shut for so long. I don't know how you can honestly. I don't either. I don't either. Well, like I said, we mentioned in another one there was that guy that finally confessed. Like thirty years later, there was one in Maine, another woman that got killed, mm-hmm. and apparently the guy that killed Joyce McLean confessed too, but. He confessed over and over, but every time he did it, he did it differently. And he was also, he had been in a car accident, weirdly, that same night and suffered severe brain damage. Oh, and so nobody really believed him. And every time he told the story of what happened, he told it uh, completely different, that the evidence didn't back up. That So nobody really believed him. Oh, God. People just Although thought, some people did think he did it, though, yeah. I think. It was weird. Anyway, yeah. maybe we'll, we'll have do, to do that, that one sometime. Some, yeah. So that was my... Oh, that's interesting, and I'd like to say that we'll have an update on that someday. Maybe we will. Yeah. You never know. You never know. And that that other kid that, I mean, Angel Torres, if it had something to do with it, maybe it did. I don't know. You don't know. Anyway. But if it did have something to do with it, it seems to me more people would know. I would think so. So do we have some recommendations? Yes. Okay. Okay, so I kind of coincidentally saw, I was looking for something to watch on, I think it was Amazon Prime the other night, and watched a documentary about Bud Wyatt, who was the treasurer, state treasurer of Pennsylvania, 
1987, after he was indicted for um, taking a bribe, well, not even taking a bribe, being offered a bribe and saying he'd take it, I think is what he was indicted for. Oh, he didn't even get any money. It was a complicated case, and he was indicted, which doesn't mean he did it. He shot himself in the head at a press conference. Oh, yeah. And I had kind of forgotten all about it until I saw the photos of him with the gun, and then I vividly remembered it. And then I listened to a podcast, The Pope's Long Con, about another politician who was elected in 2016 to Kentucky's legislature, whatever it is. He, it turned out he was one of those people that just lied about his life and all sorts of stuff. And also oh, yeah, had some yeah. other criminal things. But after two episodes of the podcast had come out, he killed himself. That's right. And he wrote a suicide note blaming fake news and, um, and the media. In a lot of ways, these things don't have any similarities at all, except for there were two politicians, both of whom killed themselves. And I'm not making light of suicide. I know these days, whenever you talk about stuff, you have to do little disclaimers. And But one of the things that was in- interesting in both of them, first of all, I recommend both. The, yeah. the documentary is An Honest Man, and it was made, I think, in 2010, and you can find it on Amazon Prime. The podcast is the Pope's Long Con. It's five episodes, and they're really short, like each less than half an hour. Yeah. But one thing I find is interesting in both is the role the media had to play. An honest man is pretty much from his family's point of view. I'm just going to say now, I don't know if he's guilty or not. And after watching the documentary, I don't know if he's guilty or not. People who knew him just don't believe he's the kind of person who would accept a bribe. Huh. And it's a very, it was a very complicated case, and I don't think the documentary did a great job of explaining it that well. And I feel like it's the kind of documentary where they're kind of in a position where they want to tell the family's story. But at the end, one of the big things about his... He held a press conference the day after he was indicted. He didn't have to resign his office. There was going to be an appeal. He had become despondent. He had been a big, happy, bouncy guy, and this whole thing had really worn him down. Uh. But there were no signs that, you know, he was going to kill himself. And he had this press conference where people thought he was going to resign. And he's going on about things in not a rambling way, but a pretty focused way. Then he hands somebody these envelopes, and he goes, this is for my wife, and this is for my kids, these envelopes. And he had a manila envelope, and he takes a gun out of the manila envelope, and people are like, and they're like, don't do it. And he's kind of holding people off. You know, he's not aiming it at anyone. And you can hear people say, don't do it, bud, don't do it. And... He puts it in his mouth and oh, shoots himself. God. And you can't really, it's on film, but it's not like the yeah. Zap Ruder film or any. It's very fast, and then he falls to the floor, Ugh. and his press liaison guy is very upset. And yeah. he's telling the reporters to go. And you can hear cameras clicking and stuff. And the photos I remember seeing from it that they show, there's one where he's holding the gun up with the mm-hmm. barrel pointed yeah. up and has his hand out to whoever's coming towards him and it's taken from the point of view uh, where like almost you're the person who his hand is mm-hmm. out at and that's the one photo i remember from it but the documentary is about his career and who he was and kind of what led up to this it kind of starts with the suicide and then it goes into all this and that but then there's your typical press bashing media yeah. bashing 
And, They're vultures. And, right. Why didn't anybody stop him from doing it when he pulled the gun out? And one of the reporters, and it's funny because I had kept seeing his, I think his name was Fred Cusick. I kept seeing his byline because they would show headlines and stuff about this whole lengthy case. And then he was interviewed at the time and he said, well, we didn't know. There was no question he wanted to shoot himself, but we didn't know if he was going to shoot any of us. Well, he had a gun first, in his hand. First, it was a three fifty seven Magnum, so it was a big gun. But the reporter said, we didn't know if he was going to shoot any of us. And um, this documentary was made in 2010. So in 2010, when there have been plenty of fucking shootings, you have people acquainted, friends and family of the guy, Bud Wyatt, scoffing at that saying he, it was clear from what he was saying, blah, blah, blah. And first of all, if you're there and all of a sudden this guy who you think has just given a press conference pulls a gun, you're not rationally you're parsing, yeah, no. you're not rationally parsing what he said to think, okay, what are the odds he's going to shoot me if I go try to stop him or not? And also, there's been enough shootings. You know, there's a guy who's waving a gun around in a press conference. I'm not going to assume, no matter who he is or what he said, that he's not going to shoot me. And then there was a lot of criticism because photographers kept taking photos. Uh, you know, it's all for their egos, somebody said. And somebody said they should have put down their cameras and stopped them and all this. And I think what people don't understand is if you're a news photographer... You're not there making this rational decision. I'm going to keep taking pictures instead of doing this. Your job is to take pictures. And being in the media for as long as I have, I realize people don't understand that when you're in the media, you're doing a job nobody's going to thank you for in a lot of ways. But the, their They're job showing... was to take pictures, and they, I can guarantee you, not one of them was weighing whether they should or not. They They're were there to do their jobs. It. There was criticism of what was printed and what was published. There always is, though. Um, I mean... I think, and, you know, you can see the video of him on YouTube. You, or you can or you can watch the documentary. But what I want to say is the photos I remember, they weren't of him shooting himself. They were of him with the gun. But also... You know, we don't live in this Disney World kind of world where everybody is everything is nice and clean and pretty and none of the bad things are seen. When something like that happens and the media is there, it's their job to report on it. And I understand if you're in the guy's family, you don't want to fucking see that. And I understand that. But the media isn't there to protect the families of people who they report on. He's a politician. He's the one who publicly killed yes, himself. He did. Whatever his challenges were, whatever his mental health illness challenges were, he had a son and a daughter who were either in their late teens or early 20s. The documentary, it frustrated me because it was never clear on things like that, what their ages were, even though it talked to them. Because I'm not, I don't want to sit there and do math instead of listening to people. But he's the one who did that ultimately it's his responsibility that he did that whether he was innocent or guilty and it was a very complicated ugly case it was a dickensian tangled up thing he had done a very honest thing earlier that had pissed off the governor of pennsylvania dick thornburg was using state police to chauffeur his kids to their private school in massachusetts and as Bud Wyatt, as state treasurer, said, we're not going to pay for that. And he said it publicly. So he pissed the governor off, even though they were in the same party. 
And that's kind of what precipitated this whole him being offered a bribe. And the guy who offered it, uh, another a lawyer or something named Bill Smith, said that Bud's reaction kind of like was, oh, who says I wouldn't take it? You know, Bill's like, they're making me offer this to you, but I know you wouldn't take it. And then Bud's was like, oh, who says I wouldn't take it? And to me, that's not really accepting a bribe. But it's a complicated thing that they had a guy, and you could tell immediately when they showed him that he was a writer or reporter because of the way he looked, who wrote a book about it. And they also had this other woman who wrote a book. Her book seems to defend him a lot. I want to read the other guy's book because I think it might have a more nuanced portrayal of the whole case. So that was interesting. And then we get to the podcast. The guy in the podcast, Danny Johnson, (laughs) lied about all sorts of shit. He was minister of this fake church where there's a lot of drinking. It turns out... Uh, like What's about the third or fourth episode, you find out he molested a teenage oh, girl, okay. probably one, one who was willing to talk about it. He said he was at 9-11. He helped set up yeah. a morgue at 9-11. Anytime people brag about what they did at 9-11, look into it. Anytime they brag about any big... Right. Yeah. He was at some other big thing that I can't remember now, doing stuff there. He He was running in 2016. And, you know, I don't have to say who he aligned himself with presidentially. You can just guess. He, on his Facebook page, he had a picture of Michelle and Barack Obama with monkeys' faces on them. Hmm. And he says that wasn't racist. It was just, you know, portraying what, I'm not sure what it was. (laughs) So all sorts of stuff like this. And so he gets elected to the state legislature. His party, when he did the thing on Facebook kind of distance itself from him but then it, the whole thing kind of dropped like things like that do you can listen to the podcast i won't go into all the details but he became elected and i think a county that went three quarters for trump his election there was only a hundred and something difference in the votes between him and the democrat but his committing suicide the people doing the podcast before the third episode the guy comes on and says danny ray johnson committed suicide after the second episode came out and apparently he did it on a bridge he shot himself on a bridge he had a lengthy suicide note that blamed the podcast and the fake news and all the stuff about him is backed up but there was criticism that the podcast still went on what they did instead of dropping an episode every week they said we're just doing the whole thing now and drop the rest of the episodes. And they didn't re-edit them, so there's one part where they're saying, you know, we tried to talk to Danny Ray Johnson, and he won't talk. But again, I would say, first of all, two episodes have already been released, and you can't, you know, you can't unring a bell. Yeah. But second of all, they're reporting on a politician that that both political parties, the media, nobody held accountable for obvious crap he was saying even if you get past the racist and everything the lies about his background nobody vetted him nobody checked him out nobody wrote stories about who he was or whether all the things he was claiming he did were true oh he said he was the chaplain for several presidents and they talked to a presidential scholar that said the office he said he held doesn't exist and this guy has written these books about religion and the presidency, the guy they talked to, and he goes, I've never heard his name before, and I would have if he had done what he said he did. So, and he basically, I think, blamed the podcast for his demise, and other people, supporters of him, blame the podcast. And it's another instance of this is why the press exists. 
because yeah, to don't shine you, a don't light, you can't blame the guy for being a narcissist and telling lies. What you do is you blame all the people who turn their heads and let them get away with it. And don't be surprised when the shit hits the fan. Well, the problem is... And he's accusing... And another thing. He's they have, you know he's accusing like Hillary Clinton, oh, yeah. her up. Oh, she's the biggest liar who ever lived. And if you're going to say stuff like that about someone, you have to be sure that you're not the biggest liar who ever Which, lived. Which, uh, you know, unfortunately, that's what's happening everywhere. I so. know it is. The press gets blamed for doing their job. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about the photographers, there was that photographer that took a photograph of the um, a child who was starving to death, and there were vultures in the back, or mm-hmm. like standing behind him, like waiting for him mm-hmm. to die. Yeah. He got a lot of shit. I think he won a Pulitzer or something. But he got shit for that. Why didn't you do anything to help that child? And it's like, first of all, you probably couldn't have done anything. But what is their job? What is their role? If they're showing you something you don't like to see, that you can't... There are kids dying everywhere. The kid that washed up on the Mediterranean beach, you know, the little toddler. I posted that on my Facebook page because people were bitching about... This was a couple years ago, but it just popped up in my, Mm -hmm. you know, one, two years ago. It's like, I'm posting this picture so you can see, you know, people... People need to open their eyes. People feel it's exploitive to take the picture, but that picture can save other kids from starving. You know, it's one thing and to it's know... And telling you what the hell is right, going on. It's one on. thing to know there are starving kids in the world in a abstract way. It's another thing to see one. And no, we don't want to see it. But that's the media's job. And for instance, it's the me- there's a controversy, I don't know if you call it a controversy, going on here in Maine, there's an online news outlet called the Maine Examiner that isn't clear about who's behind it it's quote-unquote articles are written by anonymous people it pretty much sabotaged the campaign of a guy running for mayor of lewiston ben shin by taking things out of context and never contacting him for his side of things and i can't remember off the top of my head but somebody who supports the news news outlet i use that word loosely says well you know it's our first amendment right and we're just allowing stories that aren't getting told to be out there Just to be clear, and it doesn't matter which side you're on, real journalism, first of all, has a name or institution attached to it. So you can judge its credibility for yourself, and somebody's behind it. Somebody's saying, we are the ones putting this out. Second of all, you never, ever, ever, ever write a story that puts somebody in a negative light without trying to contact that person and talk to them. And if they won't talk to you, you say it. And in fact... We had reporters say we emailed, Facebooked, and called this person. Uh, we used to have reporters go knock on people's doors, yeah. even in the digital age, if it was really negative. And also another rule is a few days before an election, you don't publish anything really incendiary about the other person be with little chance for it to get worked out before Gee. the election is held. Well, that's that a, went out that's kind of an unwritten journalism rule. But what I'm saying is people, like every profession, but journalism is more out there and in your face, people look at it and think it's easy and think anyone can do it. And that's one of the reasons all these, like, fake news, it's fake news. Every time the New York Times yeah. or Washington Post prints it's fake news, it's really ignorant to feel that way because and we have discussed before it's not easy to make up <laughs> it's not easy, it's to, not make easy to make up. stuff up and it's also not easy to be in the position of being a credible journalist it's 
hard to do journalism right. But the reason the New York Times and Washington Post still exist, and also, you know, the Morning Sentinel and the Kennebec Journal and other places like that, is because they do it the way journalists are supposed to, and they're not printing fake news. And also, the, getting back to these this documentary and podcast, people focus on the messenger. Yeah. Instead of focusing on what's behind it, as far as the documentary goes, I would have wanted to have seen more. I felt it was fairly superficial, as in-depth in some ways as it was about this guy. There was a lot of repetition, and I would have liked to see more about... I think people kind of ignore mental health things or don't understand them. What would lead to something like this? It's it's not somebody else's quote-unquote fault he did what he did. It's not even his fault. But it's a, an extreme thing to do, yeah. obviously. The podcast, this guy got away with blatant lies. Anytime somebody says to me, not that people are saying all the time, anytime I hear somebody bragging about what they did at Ground Zero, yeah. it, while the dust was still settling from 9-11, I wonder. Because, well, it's like everyone that supposedly went to Woodstock. Right. It's like, yeah, right. Right. Or the people that people that claim they served in Vietnam when you know damn well they're too young to have been yes. in Vietnam. The guy in that podcast, the media didn't do its job. That's no. more of the story. No, they did not. And granted, you're not covering every single little legislative race, but this guy was so extreme, somebody should have said, hey, you know what, I'm going to find out what's going on with this guy. You know, and like he was very anti-abortion, so he kept saying his opponent, Democrat, because she was pro-choice had killed 80,000 babies, you know. And then afterwards he said, well, I'm not the one who had a negative campaign. She's the one with a negative campaign. She was, or not him, but one of his supporters. And it's like, then it played this, him constantly saying she killed 80,000 babies, you know. But in any case, that's my recommendation. Though the podcast is The Pope's Long Con, the documentary is An Honest Man. Oh. And you can find it on Amazon Prime. So maybe I'll have two. Maybe I'll do a podcast and a show. Okay, so what are your recommendations? I'll do the podcast first. I've been listening to Slow Burn. Oh, yeah, I love Slow Burn. Which is about the Watergate. It's kind of some of the backstories. The backstories, that's the thing. We all know, and now that the post is out, and we know. We all know. Well, all us old people. Uh, remember, you know, everyone, well, if you've seen all the President's Men or read the book, mm-hmm. you know kind of that's part of the story. Slow Burn is about kind of other people who were involved that weren't the stars, as as it yeah. were. They're like the supporting players. But it's very interesting. I like it a lot. Brings back a lot of the 70s, but it also, there's a lot of parallels to, to things going on Do today. Do you find, like, when you hear Dick Cavett's voice, um, nobody sounds like Dick Cavett. Dick Cavett. You know, I had a mini crush on Dick He's, Cavett. I know. he's interviewed on one of them. Yes, And it also led me to listen to another Slate podcast, Whistle Stop, about Ah. presidential elections. Oh, that sounds interesting. Because one of the slow burn episodes mentioned the whole Ed Muskie crying incident, which really should be a Richard Nixon dirty tricks incident, not Ed Muskie crying. But it mentioned it fairly briefly. Yes, it did. And then I saw Whistle Stop, or maybe they said Whistle Stop had a whole episode on it. Ooh. So I listened to that. That was my first recommendation, although it was quite short compared to yours. But my... (laughs) That's okay. Don't be sorry. My TV show is on Netflix... I don't have Amazon anymore, but I, I, hope, to, I hope to get it back <laughs> again someday when I get my tax refund. Anyways, uh, I watch Netflix a lot, as I've mentioned before, and um, I watch this show. I'm not a cooking show person. I don't like watching the cooking channel. 
I'm not a big fan um, of it, cooking shows. But I, I have been watching the, and Britain, they call it the, I think they call it the Great British Bake Off or the British Bake Off. It's called the Great British Baking Show in the United States. I don't know why, but they have it on PBS, but it's on Netflix. And I've watched, I watched the first season a couple years ago and Hannah had to watch it over and over. She mm. really liked it, especially mm. this woman, Chetna, who she is in love with. I don't know. I told <laughs> her Chetna has a cookbook. I should get it for her for her birthday. Yeah. Who's an Indian British woman and um, she didn't win. So I don't know. Uh, but but I, Hannah likes her anyway. She does like her. So I just finished watching season three of it. So this is the great... It's called The Great British Baking Show. See, I'm, you've mentioned to me several times recently that you're watching it, and I'm a little surprised every time. Let me tell you what it, it yeah. is. What it is, it's a reality show. There are 10 uh, episodes. They start with, I think, 12 or 13 people. Is there it are, like Hell's Kitchen? No, or? no. They're, I'm about to explain. Okay. They're all like home bakers. They're not professionals. They're all people that are skilled at it but they're not professionals and it's baking it's not cooking they bake so each week is a different like theme like one week is cakes and biscuits is another which is also cookies. <laughs> yeah those are cookies in america so they start out every week someone gets eliminated they have three challenges what they do is it's a weekend each they're not like living there they go home to their wherever they are during the week saturday they do two challenges and then sunday they do a third challenge and that's each episode is three challenges so they start with a signature challenge which would be like for instance they say today you're challenges you each make your version of a chocolate cake or something like that or whatever so they all make that they get judged on it they don't get points or anything the judges just they have two judges mary barry who's a well-known baker lady in in britain, britain and this guy paul hollywood who is also a well-known baker is that his real name? who's very handsome i don't know but he's he's handsome my favorite thing that happened on the most recent one is they were eating she made these things called rafa cakes mary they were all supposed to make these they were eating them he and mary barry who's an older she's probably in her 70s and he's like i don't know in his 50s but he dipped it in his tea while he was eating it and she just looked at him she's like we don't do that in the south so i guess you in the south of Britain? Yeah, apparently. So it's probably just like any other place. The north looks down on the south. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I guess you had to be there. Or the south looks down on the north, it sounds like, from... Well, that's what I meant. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Never mind. Take that out. No, I'm not. But like in Italy. But anyway, so the, what they have is they have the signature challenge that is the first challenge where you know in advance what you're going to make. All week long, you can plan it and you can practice it and blah, blah, blah. So whatever it is you're going to make, you're going to make... And, the, and everyone's well, is different. But you have to make it according to the theme, like if it's cake yes. or cookies. Yes. Or... So everyone's is different. And then they'll have this thing called the technical challenge, which they don't know what they're going to make. And they all have to make the same thing. And it's something from either one of Paul's recipes or Mary's recipes. Half the time they don't know what it is because they're like, I've never made this before. And they have like... Is it, is it called the technical challenge because there's something complicated about the recipe? No, it's because they're all doing the same recipe. Mm-hmm. Everything that they make is based, like, for instance, if they're making, like, say, angel food cake. They all have the recipe. They all have the same ingredients. You know, this is the ingredients. This is, But they don't give them, like, a full recipe. It's like an abbreviated recipe. They have to guess certain things, like how long to bake it. So it's kind of testing what are your skills. It's just like, you know how in ice skating, like ice dancing, they all have the technical challenge where they all do the same exact thing. Yeah. So when they do the technical challenge, they'll show the people all looking at this recipe going, I don't know. 
And then they'll show Paul and Mary, who are in their own little tent, and they have the uh, the thing there that what it's supposed to look like. So we all. It's in a tent. I'm sorry. It's in a tent. It's in a. (laughs) (laughs) It's in a tent on these grounds of some estate. Okay. Apparently, they're not allowed to be inside. They have to be outside. I hope the weather's nice. It rains a lot, but it's like a tent. It's got. Oh no! I'm thinking of like how cold it is here and stuff. Like it's in the summer. It's in Britain in the summer. I know. I'm. I'm just. Oh, I see. They're probably projecting. I don't know. Anyway, so Paul and Mary will have the whatever it is. Say the Rafa cakes. They'll have them there. After they introduce the technical challenge, they'll show the contestants all, like, confused. And then they'll show Paul and Mary, and they show the audience, this is what these are supposed to be like. This is what we're looking for. This is what's supposed to be like. So then you see (laughs) the people making the items, and you can see whether or not they're doing it right. And then at the end, they have to put them, bring them all up to this table, and they put them, Mary and Paul don't know whose is whose, and then Mm. they judge them. Ah. So that's a technical challenge. And then the the showstopper is the thing they do on Sundays. And that's, again, they have to all do something based on it. It all has to be a certain, <laughs> it's a certain theme, like, I don't know. And so whoever does the best one. And then at the end, um, so they have to these three make, challenges. What? So what's the difference? So the only difference between the showstopper and the signature is for the signature, they know what they're going to the make. Showstopper, the showstopper, they do they too. Don't. Well, then what's the difference between the showstopper the and show the signature? The showstopper is usually something that, that has to be very difficult and has a lot of challenges. And there's less, it's more wide open what they can do. It's kind of a more loose thing. Like, we want you to make something using chocolate or something right. like that. Oh, so I it see. can be anything. The signature bake is a specific thing. Okay. So, okay, I have two questions for you. Is we know a lot of reality shows, things seem staged or rehearsed or scripted. Do you feel any of that with this? No, I don't. That's one of the reasons I like it. You do get attached to the people's personalities because you see them, you know, as the show progresses. And there isn't any time, I don't think, really. It's very straightforward. They are cooking and sometimes talking, and they do show a background like, where they're from or whatever, they're all very nice to each other and supportive. And a couple things have happened. They have like 12 stations where they all have an oven and stuff, but they don't all seem to have a fridge. There seem to be only like six fridges. Mm. So people will share the fridge. And once they made this custard and this woman, Debbie, took this guy Howard's custard Mm. accidentally and used it in her thing that they were making that had custard inside. And he's like, someone took my custard. And it was her and she felt bad. But it wasn't like there wasn't all this drama. No. The reason I like it, I think, is because the people are all really nice, even though that sounds well, boring. That was my second question, is why do you think you like it so much in our so I think it's, it makes me hungry for food. That's the bad thing about it. Yeah. It makes me want to eat. But a lot of the English baking stuff isn't my cup of tea either. Not, yeah, to, so be, to, not to pun. But, like, they have a lot of jelly and, like, is there Is the stuff they have there different from the stuff we have here? Some of the stuff is a little different. It just seems like there's a lot of fruity. I, know that, I like, like chocolate pudding, anymore. Like, like I love bread pudding, and like that's an English kind of pudding. Yeah, like I always, sti- yeah, like I could never get it when I was a kid. Why Yorkshire pudding was this yeah, big thing? Because like not our pudding creamy. is the soft. Because ours is like a custard. Yeah, it's like, like well, part of it is because of that. I like the people in it, and the uh, other part is that there is a lot of creativity. And artistry in the baking, which I, especially in the showstoppers, that's very intriguing. They always have to like make like Maybe decorated cakes and it. stuff. But the one that I just 
saw the end of Made Me Cry. Mm. Spoiler alert, but it is from 2016. The woman who won. The way they eliminate people is Paul and Mary. They push them in the... Paul and Mary basically decide who's going to go. Yeah. And it's based on how well they did in each challenge. Right. The technical challenge they do rate from bad to best. Right. What they do is these two hosts, which are some British personalities that, I'm sorry, British people, I don't know who they are. Their names are Sue and Mel. They seem to be comedians or something, (laughs) two women, that do talk to them. So they ask them, well, so-and-so did well in this. No, but like, is there a leaderboard? No. No. Although you do know who did shittiest in the technical challenge. And by watching it, you can say, well, they didn't really like so-and-so's cake or this cake didn't bake right. So it was all runny. So that person's probably fucked, you know. So at the end, they say who's going home and they say who's the star baker. And the woman who won this one was crying. And then at the end, the last show, there's three people. They don't have two. And then one person wins. What do they get if they win? Nothing. (laughs) <laughs> they get like a platter with their name on it. Oh, that's so un American. They probably get fame and they get cooked. Well, Manson the thing that made me cry is she started crying and her family was crying. She's from Bangladesh. She's British, but she's Bangladesh. She wore a little headscarf yeah. through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Her family was crying, but also her two finalists with her started crying oh, and that's hugged sweet. her. The two men. So that was nice. That's sweet. So anyway. Talking about what's coming up in 2018, we're going to have some more guests this year. Than yeah, we I think we are. Because we like having guests. Yeah. And um, we'll maybe talk a little more and about that. And I'm sure that. you do, too, because our number one downloaded show is the one where our sister Liz was guest. Yes. But, but we're not going to have guests present no. stories the way Liz did. No. It is. That's our, our Kyron Horman show. We're going to interview is people. Is our number one downloaded We got a lot of show. good feedback. The one where we interviewed the authors at Crime Crime Bait. And our... Episode three, our Ayla Reynolds one, where Ben McKenna, the wonderful journalist, was on. Too bad we were still having issues with learning how to record. And maybe we'll get Matt back. And we're going to try to get Matt, our Ask the Lawyer, back. We'll have to back. tell him that our fans are clamoring. Well, it's not that he's been resisting. It's just that our schedule's gone yes, crazy. Yeah, our then, schedules have been messed and up. And he's a big shot lawyer, and by the grace of his niceness, was guesting on this, but we yes. have to get our schedules worked out. But... We have some authors lined up and some other people. And yes. maybe we'll talk more about it next week when we have people. When we, when we people. Definite. Yeah, definite. And some good topics. Do you want to mention, do you want to say at all what you're doing next week? What your top? Oh, wait. It's me next week. It's me doing it. Next yeah, week. Uh, I just <laughs> did mine. So well, I was like, oh shit, what am I'm I doing? Gonna, I'm going to talk about the most prolific American serial killer who I bet most of you have never heard of. He may have killed as many as 400 people. Wow. Yeah. Now, aren't you interested? Hillary Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) She only killed two, right? Um, Vince Foster. Vince Foster. And And that aid guy. Yeah. And she, of course, didn't get her own hands dirty. Maybe we should cut that out because people don't understand sarcasm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Never mind. Well, uh, they don't, and that, and one of our future guests can talk about that. Yes, yeah, and he will. But that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening. Bye. And they own the real estate agency, so of course a lot of people. And her father was on the board of of the, um, like the town council. No, yeah, no, the selectmen. Uh, no, planning board, zoning. No, would you stop? Let me finish my thought. Yeah. The museum. What's that museum? The your uh, the the one on the the historical society, but there's a, whatever in Saco. Yeah, there was one right around the corner from where we lived. Oh Jesus, I can't think of the name of it. Museum. 
It's like not a museum. It's like a historical society Just museum. Just like the Sacco Historical No, society. it's not called Sacco. It's called the U- not the York. I don't know what it is. I, I, but uh, he was on the board of it. Yeah, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. No. Just cut that all out. All right, yeah. 